Welcome to About the Winelands. In this show, we will be chatting to leaders, influencers, wine producers, restaurants, and other role players. Tune in every week for our latest episode. You will find us on YouTube, Facebook, Instagram TV, Spotify, Apple Podcast, and Google Podcast. Before we start today's show, I really need your attention. As you know, the South African wine industry is in dire straits. And um, this is because of the lockdown and the alcohol ban. We are urging everyone listening to support the Save SA Wine campaign. Please join our Facebook group at facebook.com forward slash groups forward slash Save SA Wine. And also, please share all posts on social media with the hashtag SaveSAWine. If you are a business in the wine industry, we invite you to share a video explaining how the lockdown ban is impacting your business and how many jobs are at risk. We are doing our 50th podcast next week, and we are dedicating this podcast to the SaveSAWine campaign. And all videos submitted before Monday evening will be featured in the podcast. All the details are in the group. This is all videos submitted before Monday evening, the 3rd of August. So please don't delay, submit your videos as soon as you can. The group, again, facebook.com forward slash groups forward slash save SAY. And now on with the show. Good day, everybody, and welcome to About the Winelands. Today, I'm speaking to Ken Forrester of Ken Forrester Wines. Ken, um, thank you for joining us, and welcome to About the Winelands. Thanks, Will. Thanks very much for getting us online here. It's always, uh, you know, so much going on, and, and at the same time, it's kind of we're standing behind a screen with everything shut down. Amazing world we live in, right? I always thought that, I always said we can travel internationally because anywhere in the world is just a flight away and that's been not true lately. That's terrible. I have a daughter living overseas currently and just the thought that I can't get to see her is horrible. It's really terrible. Yeah, we've... we've the longest I've been in my life without seeing my child. It's, it's not a great feeling, I promise you. No, it's totally horrible and, you know, um, it just shows how quickly life can change and how many things we take for granted, right, that we totally. shouldn't have. Totally. Ken, um, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and um, how you became involved with the wine industry? Uh, well, it was kind of, I suppose, in hindsight, looking back on it, it was probably one great big fortunate mistake. Um, <laughs> I don't know. I started... Um, finished high school and I went and studied hotel management and I wanted to get aboard the Union Castle lines. I wanted to get on board. I thought that would be the, the nicest way to be able to do it. And shortly, kind of at about that time, we were totally boycotted and there were no more liners coming to South Africa. So it meant emigrating. And I had my whole family here, which didn't seem like such a good idea to leave the country. So. I went and worked for Southern Sun Hotels. I worked in hotels and then from hotels, I went into my own restaurant, went and joined a friend in a restaurant, took on this restaurant, that crazy 21 year old starting a restaurant or taking into a restaurant in Johannesburg. And then 
within about four or five years, we had a couple of restaurants running and we had more things going on. And then I joined up with Mark Guibert and he had Ile de France in Johannesburg and we had a partnership going with La Bastille. And with these restaurants running, we came down to the Cape, my wife and I, to a wedding. A friend of ours getting married down here in the Winelands. And I took my wife around and showed her all the, the producers that we were buying from. Because in those days, you were buying from a wine producer. You couldn't just pick up the phone and they delivered. It didn't work like that. You know, each, each winery put their wine on the train themselves. They didn't, we didn't have a kind of distribution network 40 years ago that you've got today. And so unless you were buying from the Stillers Corporation or Stellenbosch Farmers Winery, and then you were getting the very humdrum kind of the, just the middle of the road kind of wines. And I wanted estate wines. And people like Speer and Baxberg, for example, wouldn't ship their wine together because they were scared each other were going were to steal each other's clients or something. I'm not sure, but that's how far back it was. And I showed my wife this property. We are actually talking to him, Yanni. Engelbrecht at Rustenfreda. And he said, man, there's a farm down the road here towards the coast. But he said, and we came and had a look at this farm. And it was all Shannon Blanc mainly with a little bit of Syrah and some Sanso. And actually some Sauvignon Blanc as well. And so we had a look at this place and it was on the market. It was for sale. And I said to my wife, with all the chaos going on in Joburg, we, in our one restaurant downtown Johannesburg, had just had 18 of our windows shot in a march, one of the, the, the last marches before the elections. And so we semigrated. We bought this property on a public auction, 50 hectares of Stellenbosch, situated between Stellenbosch, right underneath the Helderberg, on the way to the coast, on the way to, to Somerset West, and we are literally halfway. We're 10 kilometers to Stellenbosch and 10 kilometers to Somerset West. And we, this 50 hectares, as I said, was planted largely to Sauvignon Blanc. I made the very first vintage. I took about 2.7 tons of Sauvignon Blanc to Mike Dobrovich in 1994. And Mike very kindly pressed it and I got some barrels. I got some secondhand white barrels from Hempies to Toy and Kevin Arnold, who had a partnership making Chardonnay with those barrels. So we took this Sauvignon Blanc and we fermented it in barrel in 1994. And the first wine I made was a couple of hundred cases of Blanc Fumé made by Mike Dobovich and myself. And then the following year, we spoke to Martin Minard, who was a good friend of mine. He was the winemaker at Vergelechen, but he had a winery that he wasn't using. Can you imagine somebody just happens to have a spare winery? Well, that was Martin. He was working at Vergelechen and he had his own cellar and vineyards in Devon Valley. And basically, I wanted to rent his cellar. So I rented space in his cellar and then took my grapes there and started making wine there. And Kathy Marshall had just finished her training and she was working at Schrechlichen with Martin and Kathy came on and she was our very first winemaker. So it's, it's been an incredible time. If you look back over 25 years of where we started and today we produce about a million bottles of wine and we market in about 40 countries around the world. Um, half of our production is here in South Africa in, in restaurants mainly. And then the balance is all offshore and in a, mainly restaurants there as well. A little bit of stuff in liquor stores, but no really big supermarket stuff. 
So we've always looked to kind of produce great wines. We, we don't buy in um, grapes. We try and farm or we try and get leases on other people's land and we'll farm that land. We've got the most fantastic viticultural team headed up by Peter Rousseau. And um, we farm their property and then negotiate to buy their fruit from them at ruling market prices. But that way we guarantee quality from the fruit all the way through. So that in a nutshell is what we do. We've got three ranges today. We've got our real popular, easy drinking, everyday petty range. And that petty range includes Sauvignon Blanc, Chenin Blanc, Chardonnay, Rosé. There's an off dry white and the, we call it our natural sweet. And there's a Pinotage and a Cabernet. And that, you know, I think everybody wants everyday wine. And for me, our petty range is quite simply my 100 point wines. Those are the 100 point wines. Because when you've had that tough kind of day and you get home and you reach into the fridge and you pull out a bottle and you pour yourself a glass, and you have a sip of that wine and you go, you nice. That's as good as it gets. What did you want more than nice? That's 100 points right there. And so for me, it's really critical to get good, good quality in that bottle. And, you know, retailing that at around 60 rand a bottle, I think, is, is right within reach for many, many, many people as an everyday wine. And then we have our reserve range, which is slightly older vineyards mainly and barrel fermented and a little more time spent in the cellar, maybe a whole year before we launch and release those wines. In case of the red wines, the Renegade and the, the, the Merlot, we're looking at two years before release. So the wines already got a little bit of age on them. They've spent time in oak. They're richer, softer, riper. And then finally, we have specific single vineyard parcels of wine for things like Gypsy, and FMC, our flagship wine, the FMC, which we've been making now with our 2019 vintage FMC, is our 20th vintage of making FMC. And when Martin and I made that wine, Martin's a member of the Cape Independent Winemakers Guild, um, and that wine went into the Guild auction, the very first vintage of that wine in 2001, I think. The vintage wine, the wine was 2000 vintage and we sold it in 2001 on the auction. And we sold that wine on auction for 160 Rand a bottle in 2001. And oh. that was the same price as Anthony Hamilton Russell was getting for his Chardonnay. So it was a monster price. It was huge. And I decided, well, if we're going to sell it on auction for that price, then we've got to be brave enough to take it to the market at that price. And we had a launch in Johannesburg at my restaurant. I still had a restaurant up there. My partner had a restaurant. We kept um, Gattrell's. And um, Mike Fridgen said to me, you know, that's a, a very stiff price for Chenin Blanc. And my argument to him was, it's a good price for white wine. That's a great price for great white wine. I think that's very fair. I think I'm, I'm quite happy to pay that money for a great bottle of white wine. Why wouldn't anybody else? And I have to say that just with kind of as a product of inflation, that wine today sells at about 550 rand a bottle retail, and we sell every bottle we make. If I could produce double, we would sell it all. We sell out of that wine. We've been out of that wine in most markets now for nearly three months. And we don't rush the next vintage. If we're out of stock, I'm afraid we're out of stock. It just takes that long. It's hand harvested. 
its selections through the vineyard. You know, before the drought cycle started about five years ago, we would do four or five selections in the vineyard. And now we currently, in, in this kind of drought cycle, we've been, had to be a little more choosy, a little more picky. And it might require 10 selections through the vineyard. And each selection might be three or four days apart or a week apart. And all of that fruit, that whatever we pick, if it's just a barrel's worth or two barrels or four barrels, all of that gets made separately. It's all fermented in barrel in 400 liter French oak. And it's all wild yeast ferment. I mean, I love the kind of concept that everybody's jumping on this natural wine bandwagon. I mean, we've been using wild yeasts for 25 years. Wow. That's what we do. We don't know, we didn't know you could. <laughs> it's just, we've been playing this game with wild yeast and going through mallow in barrel and and yeah we use a bit of sulfur but it's kind of smart it keeps the wine clean and stuff like that we're very cautious with our sulfur levels we keep them as low as possibly and we use absolutely zero sulfur prior to moving the wine for its first racking so right through fermentation except for no sulfur on that wine and um yeah the fmc has really been a, a, a wonderful wonderful kind of project and you know I set out I said to Martin Minot when we started out I said Marty why can't we make the best white wine in the world he said yo you know maybe your kids maybe in 20 years time I said what why should it take 20 years why can't we approach that and set about doing it and I truly believe that we've kind of established an icon after 20 years and you know I have that FMC in top restaurants around the world it's it's in London New York Paris even in Paris believe it or not on, on restaurant lists, it's in, it's in great wine stores around the world. And it has a huge following. I have private clients um, who buy that wine. We have a, a, a client in Aspen who buys five cases every kind of November. And he tells me, look, don't take offense here, but this is my kind of everyday Montrachet. Well, he's paying $60 a bottle. If that's what you're happy, you know, I'm happy. It suits you. I, I wish I could get $60 for it, but that's what it becomes in retail America. So, yeah, it's been a wonderful, wonderful journey. What can I say? Well, 25 years later, and to keep myself slightly insane, we constantly have other projects on the go all the time. We make um, some wine from Pekingeskloof. We've got some Chenin Blanc from Pekingeskloof, which is a vineyard planted in 1959, a little bushland vineyard. And there what we did was we applied all the natural principles of kind of hands-off winemaking, very minimal interference, and what we do there to make it just a little more tricky and even crazier is each release of that wine is simply denoted by one, two, three. So right now we're busy building the blend for the third release of the wine, no vintage. And in fact, the wine in the bottle is a blend of five vintages in this third release. And if you think of all of the champagne that you've ever drunk, most of that champagne, 95, I don't know, 99% might have been non-vintage, mm -hmm. in which case it was a blend of somewhere between three and 10 vintages, but nobody bats an island, champagne to champagne, you don't even think back how many vintages are in this. You don't think to look for the vintage unless you're specifically looking at vintage champagne, but you need lots of money for that. And so have a non-vintage white wine from a single vineyard made up of between three and five vintages each year and all wild yeast barrel fermented, old neutral barrels. When I say old barrels, 10-year-old barrels, there's no hint of oak on the wine. The barrels are simply vessels 
which allow for nice gentle oxygenation and good settling because of the oxygen protein kind of alignment that takes place. So we do that, we make a bit of sense. So um, every year, just to kind of keep the staff right up to the people who sit in debtors and accounts and you know, logistics, we make a wine each year where I say to them, what would you like to make this year? And I'll go and source the grapes and that could be Pinot Noir, it could be Sanso, it could be, uh, what have we made, Gewürztraminer. And we, we kind of go and get the grapes, we de-stalk, little hand de-stalking. And when you start, when you work out how long it takes to hand de-stalk half a ton of grapes, you never want to do it again. <laughs> it's hard work. And then we, we, we'll crush the fruit and ferment it right here in the cellar, open bins or in a small tank, and then press that off with a little hand press and into barrel if it needs to go into barrel and set it up and that becomes a little kind of fun for the staff that's the wine that they made each year so we constantly have new projects and new things going on uh, it's it's wonderful we do special wines for little groups um frank dungeon with the food barn wanted some syrah and he came and had a look at our syrah and we kind of produced we have various syrah vineyards that we make from and he said but he you know kind of likes the idea of a classical french styled syrah more Rhonish, kind of slightly wilder, mm -hmm. less kind of berry fruit. So we gave him some samples of both styles and it ended up he took both. So, you know, we constantly kind of fiddle about and make, make stuff. And that's what we really love doing. I've got an assistant in the cellar, um, a youngster by the name of Sean Matesa. And Sean went through agricultural college here in Stellenbosch. Um, he's been with us now for oh, six years. And Sean is just the most wonderful, wonderful youngster. And he's taking over more and more of the winemaking and got his own projects going now. So every day is, is fun and exciting. There's always something new going on. Okay, now I have a problem now because you've been so passionate about the wine. And when you talked about the 100 points and you haven't stopped, is, is I, I need a glass of wine now. And I think everybody listening to this need a glass of wine. And most of us can't get any. So... <laughs> and so, this so, is the reason that those people have wine cellars, just in case there's going to be a lockdown. And people, build yourself a little cellar under the stairs, but let's get some wine in stock. I, and I think that's sure right. That you need to, you need to, we need to encourage people to stock up and make sure they have a cellar that's stocked. I mean, you, no decent person should, should not have a stocked wine cellar. Ken, where does, um, I'm, I'm yeah. very interested, I mean, you're so passionate. Where does this Ken Forrester passion come from? Hey, well, you know, I don't know. I've always had this kind of passion for food and for wine. Mm -hmm. You know, my biggest kind of bugbear in the restaurant industry was to try and find good, consistent beef. So we would talk to our butcher and we'd have the most magnificent sirloin. And then there'd be a big rugby match that weekend. And the next week, the solo was terrible. I'd say to him, what happened to the solo? No, he doesn't know. No, he didn't hang it or whatever. Then I kind of started digging into this. And the beef industry in South Africa is very interesting because we don't have a grading system that tells us about what actual um, breed of beef. So we don't know. The grading system from the state abattoirs doesn't tell you this is Angus or, you know, what the dairy farmer has just gone out of business. So he sold all of his old Jersey cows and the Jersey cows go through the abattoir. So we're getting meat with big yellow fat on it. We don't understand what that is. How did that change? Well, there's no recognition of the different breeds through the abattoir. So it becomes very, very difficult to get consistent beef. 
And eventually what we did was about 10 years ago, I spoke to a vet who was a professor here at Stonewash University of animal husbandry, specifically bovine animal husbandry, cattle, um, getting, getting mommy cows pregnant. That's his business. That's what he does best. Mm -hmm. And I was chatting to him about a little piece of land we had down here, which was not suitable for vineyard. And I said, I was looking for high value beef because I mean, Stanbosch is expensive land. You can't just put dollies on it. So he said, well, what about we go for some Wagyu? And I said, that would be an excellent idea. How do we do that? So we had to import um, embryos. So we bring embryos in frozen in nitrogen and then you get some surrogate cows, some mommy cows, and you get these cows all cycled and, and into the, the kind of phases, whatever. And he comes along, inserts the embryos, and the embryo takes nine months. The gestation period is nine months. And after nine months, you have a 100% Wagyu cow. Remember, an embryo is not artificial insemination. An embryo is a complete lead. It's already a fertilized egg. So it's a Wagyu egg, fertilized mm. Wagyu sperm. And that embryo is 100% Wagyu, even though it's carried in an Angus cow, for example. So after nine months, your cows are born and you've got Wagyu beef. And 10 years later, we're now producing Wagyu beef for the brand Cape Wagyu. And we now have consistent beef. It took me 40 years to get there. Do you have to keep on importing the embryos or can you start building your own um, herds eventually? Or doesn't it work that way? Well, for different bloodlines, we can bring in embryos because we want to kind of have a variety of bloodlines. We don't want to repeat the same bloodlines. So yeah, just from a genetic point of view, it's, it's, it's good, it's healthy to have some different bloodlines coming in. But mm -hmm. generally what we're doing is we are now putting our bulls to our own cows and, and producing our own Wagyu from locally, locally produced cake Wagyu, yep. Interesting. So, yeah, well, I didn't even know this. What, every day you learn something. Can, um, <laughs> your, your estate is, a, I mean, it's a nice, such a nice place. What can you guess experience when visiting you guys? You know, what we try to do, we had a tour operator phone us up and say, you know, guys, you want to bring buses there, but your gates are too narrow and you need to trim all your trees. And I said to him, no, maybe you must get smaller buses because we don't really want big buses. We just aren't, we can't accommodate 40 people jumping off a bus all at once. We're a much, much smaller um, kind of place and we want to stay that way. So we've got a, a tasting lounge, which is set up with some tables and chairs with a little bar area, with some couches, settees, with little lounge areas. So it's a whole mishmash of different environment that you can come in and get comfortable. We also have the most wonderful outside seating area under the trees, wonderful old oak trees. And you're sitting right next to this, this Bafmir, this old fashioned Bafmir with a, with a tinkling fountain next to you. And we try and treat people in a very personable and, and genteel kind of way. We try and look after them. We provide cheese platters, and obviously we provide some Wagyu biltong and Wagyu durovors. So there's this little selection of, of knickknacks of food, not specifically a meal, but we use exclusively Dalewood cheeses. And we put out a cheese platter with homemade biscuits and, and maybe bread. And we offer you various different kind of tailor-made tastings where we would say to you, this is the Shannon 101 tasting, the Shannon Masterclass tasting, this is the best of both worlds tasting with some reds and some whites. Um, you know, so there's a whole lot of options and we happily open bottles and taste virtually anything we have on, on, 
on in stock here. And you know, I, I kind of people say, oh, you can't taste that. That's our most expensive wine. Imagine if Ferrari said you can't test drive our cars. How would they sell them? You know? Yeah, so exactly. As far as I'm concerned, it, it's all available for tasting. You know, come in and taste, come in and feel welcome. And the people who, you know, under normal circumstances before government shut us down, the people who want to just come and sit here and have a bottle of wine, have a glass of wine and, and a, a cheese platter, because it's a great place just to sit under the trees. We've got six dogs, a variety of shapes and sizes, um, kind of three of them ex-animal uh, welfare, uh, three little local Jack Russells, and then the rest kind of all mishmash. So the dogs are welcoming and friendly. It's just a, a nice environment. We want you to feel comfortable when you come here. Wow, that sounds wonderful. First, you made me made me want to have a glass of wine, and now you made me hungry. So I'm scared to ask you the next question, and that is, you're also selling champagne in your wine lounge. Um, can you tell us a bit more <laughs> about that? That's quite interesting. Well, you know, like they say, a lot of business is done on the golf course and in bars. Well, I went, we used to go to many, many years ago, I'm doing 20, 23, 24 years ago. Every year, our distributor in the UK, which was Oddbins, which in those days was the premium distributor of, of clever wine, of interesting wine in the UK, that nearly 400 stores and buyer was a fellow called Steve Daniel, who probably has the best palate that I've ever come across in my life. The man is an unbelievable taster. And they used to have a show every year, which was just a wonderful show at the Park Lane Hotel in the ballroom, right on Hyde Park. I know and exactly I where that fly. is. Yeah, you nice know, place. Right number one Park Lane, right next door to the Mini and BMW dealers down there. That's right. And, and we'd go down there and I'd fly in the night before, land that morning, take my suitcase straight to the show, um, get off the tube and then walk from Marble Arch or whatever, straight in, in there with my suitcase, set up on my stand and meet all the mates that you met last year. Then that Saturday night was a big party, a big event, dinner and a party, normally a dance at a big event. And then the next day you'd arrive feeling slightly worse for wear. And the guys next to me were built out some champagne. And I was feeling slightly worse for wear. And I said to the fellow, well, do you mind if I have some champagne, please? This is nine o'clock in the morning, as one does. And he poured me this little one centimeter splash. And I looked at him and I said, that's seriously not going to work. Um, where I come from, we need a glass of champagne. Oh, South Africa, we don't have representation. So I said, well, that we can talk about but let's get some champagne going first. So we had a sip of champagne, we had a chat, and long story short, I ended up being the importer and representative for Bilkart Salmon and have been for the last 22, 23 years. And Amazing. it's the most delicious champagne, the most wonderful philosophy behind it all. It's in the same family since um, 1818. It's now in the eighth generation of the same family, the Bilkart family. And the legend is, is that Francois Bilkar married Elizabeth Salmon for her vineyards. And she had the most unbelievable Blanc de Blanc vineyards. And the, the, the two families will never agree because they both think each other married each other for each other's vineyards. That's so a wonderful kind of French German story. But, and that, that, Typical champagne story, this, right? <laughs> I think these guys invent these stories to sell their, their, their champagne. I, I, I've read so many of these stories and then you find out later on these are actually they were in, these stories were invented as a marketing ploy. 
it, you know, and it works. <laughs> yes, of course. <laughs> <laughs> you can't knock it, it works. And, you know, their champagnes, what I love about their champagnes is that, you know, you just, you don't feel that searing acidity. The balance on their wine is just magnificent. And they recently, well, recently, about six or seven years ago, decided to increase the size of their cellar and their production. And they took in a partner and they asked their bank to issue some kind of B shares and to, to raise capital. And one buyer, one person took a whole batch. He said, right, that's it. And he's a guy, Mr. Frey. And Frey also has a Bordeaux vineyard and a Rhone vineyard. He's got Chateau Béchevel in Bordeaux. He's wow. now got a share in the, the kind of um, recapitalizes of Bilcar, and he's dying to buy the whole place. And um, he also owns a place down in the Rhone. So they really are in good company. Um, they make wonderful, wonderful wine. Uh, one of the, they were at a champagne dinner, and Francois Bilcar, who's just about retired now, he's about 80 years old, he still goes in every morning. Um, and his father used to go in until he was a ripe old age every day. And he says he was at a champagne producer's dinner sitting next to a big, prominent, prominent brand. And this guy from this brand was telling him about how much money they've spent on packaging and marketing and advertising. And Francois said, that's really strange because we just spend our money on, on grapes, on the best fruit we can buy. And yep. that's their philosophy. That's how they think. Yep. And uh, it works. I mean, Ken, wine, I think, I think you've just... You just said something that most businesses forget. The best money you can spend is on the quality of your product. That's where it should start, right? Yep. Absolutely. Couldn't be anywhere, any other way. And I think this, this comes right through the, just the way you're speaking about your philosophy in business and your philosophy in wine and, and your philosophy in beef. Um, you realize that the quality of your ingredients and the quality of your product is ultimately the thing that matters most. So that's, that's very nice to hear. Well, you know, I put my name on the thing and, and I thought that was a good idea because the farm was called Skoltzenhof when we bought this place. Now, I think that's a difficult name to market. Skoltzenhof, you know. In yeah, it just sounds like debt as well. You, you never get out of debt with that name. <laughs> never get out of, you don't get out of debt and you don't get out of the court. So that's a bit of a yes. problem. Yeah, that's Mr. Moylik. And I thought to myself, at least I haven't been to jail yet. So maybe Forrester can work because I know a lot of people from my restaurant days. And maybe that, that's what we'll do. So we called it, the, we called it Ken Forrester Wine. It's just a lack of inspiration, I suppose. We should have been smarter than that. But at the end of the day, with your name on the bottle, you've actually got to want to drink the wine yourself. And, and frankly, I will drink every one of the wines that I make. And I really would back them because based on the fact that we produce that fruit and I've got really smart viticulture and we work really hard on viticulture and getting balance in the vineyards. Um, you know, we've looked at organic farming and we've looked at all kinds of production methods and we farm with no herbicides, no insecticides. Um, absolutely, you know, if we have to go through and spray anything that's as natural as possible, we use sulfur obviously to control leaves and stuff like that. But really it's, it's as clean as we can. We use ducks to, to control snails. Um, we bring in our ducklings at the moment are busy nesting, they're on eggs, and we're just waiting for them. Now they hatch those eggs out and we get all those babies going. And we should get to about 60, 60 ducks, it's what we look for each season. 
And then we, we train those ducks once we've grown them up a little bit and fed them up for about a month. They get a stable to themselves with some infrared lights and lots of crushed mealies. And then we put a little plank with some crushed maize up the plank onto the back of a little trailer behind a quad bike. And they walk up this plank onto this trailer and we take them down to the bottom of the farm and then lead them back every day. And we drop them off in a different part of the farm every day and they walk back. And as they walk back, they scavenge and they literally eat anything that moves. They are our deadly ducks. I mean, these guys clean the vineyard up for us. They take out all the insect growth, which is just fantastic. Great. Wow, that's an amazing story. Ken, um, something else, you know, um, yeah, we was... talked a little bit about the lockdown and the coronavirus has forced all of us to rethink our business models. So do you have any new ideas or changes in mind? Sorry, well, in new, new ideas in terms of what marketing, selling wine, you know, at the moment we're all literally in the same boat. We're doing, we're very engaged in Zoom calls and stuff like that with our overseas clients, just on the telephone with our overseas clients, talking to them, um, being in touch with them, trying to keep them going. But they have the same problem. Their restaurants are all shut down. Yeah. So the, the demand has tapered off remarkably. I mean, there's really, sadly, the demand has fallen tragically. So we're desperately kind of trying to keep things going, keep things burning. Um, in the local market, it's terribly difficult because people can order wine and they can't get it. And with the last lockdown, we sold a lot of wine online and then with when when opened up of course we needed the courier companies to come to the party mm -hmm. to get the deliveries done we try to do all of our local deliveries <clears throat> here i mean i filled my car three times a day and drove to cape town and to simonstown and to cape point and all around i delivered myself I and mean, all of us were driving around with our cars laden 60 70 cases of wine in the car but to get to joburg and stuff like that we needed couriers and we were let down terribly by our courier company so sadly, we disappointed a few folk. It was just, I mean, and unfortunately I hear it happened to a lot of the wine industry. Mm -hmm. So, you know, just getting your stock out after lockdown is going to once again be a bottleneck. Uh, you know, it's very tricky, very difficult. Um, we obviously staying in touch. It's, it's hard to do tastings because people don't have wine, don't have, you can't get stock to them. We were hoping to release and launch our um, Gypsy, which was now delayed because we wanted to send out a, a bottle um, to press and, and interested people and influencers. And at the same time, um, there's a wonderful, wonderful dish which actually comes from that part of France, um, which uh, cassoulet from the south of France from Carcassonne, which is just sort of near the, the Loire Valley, and mm -hmm. uh, near the Rhone Valley, sorry. And we wanted to cook up a, a cassoulet from a recipe that we used to use in our restaurants and send out a cassoulet and a gypsy. And what could be nicer than baking your cassoulet and sitting down with a bottle of gypsy and then talking about it, except that we can't send the wine out. So yeah, it's, it's restrictive. It's tough. And you know, it's really tough on staff we've got to try yes. and maintain and keep our staff employed and try and keep people 
going. And, you know, the knock-on effect is what really worries me. You know, if you lay somebody off, you're laying off the breadwinner of a family. You're not, it's not one person out of work. It's five people out of food. And, you know, government hasn't given us a lot of support. We've got tours now until the middle of August, which obviously we're claiming on behalf of our staff. We, we're doing what we can there. But at some stage with, without income, we're going to have to have a discussion with maybe asking people to temporary layoff for three months or get them into work and just pay them for the hours that they work. But it's incredibly difficult for the industry. And the bad news that really worries me is that with this big fall in demand, we've had a great vintage. 2020 was a good vintage. 2021 with wonderful winter rainfall and a nice cold winter looks like another good vintage coming. We've got a lot of fruit and a lot of juice and everybody is sitting on tanks and full tanks. Yeah. Most people, and I say everybody, I think majority of the industry is sitting on full tanks. We've seen bulk wine prices, which we, we kind of give us an indication of the state of the market. We've seen prices slipping by 30%. Wow. And, you know, we're now just starting to prune and looking towards next year's harvest with tanks that are still full. And I just feel terrible about what is going to happen to the growers. How are they going to sell their fruit? Um, if the prices fall 30%, it'll knock farmers off the land. Yeah, this is true. So, yeah, there's hard times coming. Um, yeah. So, Ken, talking about this, I mean, this year has been a very, I mean, I think people probably learn more this year about themselves than any, any year before. But what is the most important thing that you've learned from your wine journey? And we've, what's the most important thing we've learned? You know, I think you kind of don't burn your bridges. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, got, you want to sell wine to somebody. If they don't want your wine today, just stick around. You've got to wait a while. Maybe they'll take your wine in 10 years' time. You know, we're not here for the short term. You know, looking at vineyards, that FMC vineyard, at some point, I mean, that vineyard was planted in 1970, so it's already 50 years old. Now, at some point, that vineyard's going to be past its sell-by date. So what we did about 10 years ago was we took cuttings from that vineyard and had them all cleaned up in a lab, in a, in a technical um, um, nursery, and then replanted the bottom part. I took out one-third of the vineyard, which was a sacrifice. I had to lose one-third of the vineyard. But I had to make some investment in the future. Yeah. And so we replanted fmc at the fmc vineyard but we still have two-thirds of the old vines and what we've done now with the the old vines is that where we have weak vines or where vine has picked up a disease or dieback in the in, in the rows we've now taken out that vine left the soil fallow for a year and then replanted the following year so we interplanting and we mark those young vines so we, we separate them. We don't pick that fruit um, to go into FMC. That gets picked separately. But when you plant a vineyard, you plant it for your children. And you might not even see that fruit um, in that wine come to full fruition. So it's a long-term game, you know, and it's, it's not a kind of quick, quick release. I'm always slightly amazed <clears throat> when we approach 
restaurants and we want them to buy our wines and that and they'll say sure but you know there's a listing fee what's this listing fee well you know we've got to pay for wine lists and etc i mean they're buying the product and they're putting a margin on it they're marking it up i mean essentially you know if i sell a wine to a restaurant at 100 rand and they sell it i imagine on that 100 rand let's assume we make a 30 percent gross margin so we're making 30 rand they sell that wine for 300 rand the waiter gets a 10 percent tip on that wine he makes as much money as i do and it's taken me three years of growing the wine making the wine keeping it in barrel for two years before i even see my 30 rand he gets his 30 rand the day he sells the wine so i mean I the, the, the market is quite a tricky market but that's as the market is you're not going to change that anytime soon it's just that to have to grow the vin to have to own a vineyard grow the grapes make the wine have a big fancy stainless steel cellar um with the wooden barrels imported from france and then to buy the bottles and buy the labels and buy the boxes and then go to a restaurant and say, I'd like to give you 10,000 Rand to buy my wine. Seems crazy to me. Isn't that where the power of branding comes in though? If, 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 if the restaurant's sitting there and this customer comes in and says, can I have a bottle of Kent Forrester's wine? He doesn't have a choice, right? You know, unfortunately, the wine, um, how can I say, the, the loyalty to brand with wine is not as extreme as it is with say beer for example mm -hmm. where i mean certainly before the advent of all the craft beers you had an amstel drinker and a castle drinker and a lion lager the guy drink no, he only drinks vintage no, i don't drink castle whatever the case is mm -hmm. whereas in the restaurant you look at the wine list and you're looking for a chardonnay or you're looking for a chenin blanc and you go oh, yeah oh there's there's a great chenin blanc from sebastian beaumont let's have that we'll be happy with that you know and so there's always a replacement and there's, there's, there's not a lot of brand loyalty, sadly. Is it that a South African so, thing where we've actually marketed the, the um, varieties more than the actual wines? Well, I think that branding is, in the wine industry, I think branding is everything. You need to build a brand. You've got to be a brand. If you think of literally any wine um think of a french wine immediately it's a brand and mm -hmm. and that's what's really really important you know if, if i say gigal gigal immediately you know what we're talking it's got to be southern rhone gigal it's going to be fantastic and it's, it's you know gigal so branding is really really important and i think that that to me is possibly the hardest thing is to constantly stay on a path of brand building and producing wine that's good for your brand and sending out a message that's good for your brand and maintaining the honesty and, and, and of your brand so that your brand actually does grow you, you've really got to be consistent the messaging that goes out and that what what you're doing your product your quality all have to be utterly utterly consistent Again, um, it's, I mean, it's such a pleasure talking to you, but um, uh, my last question for you is to give us your very own wine quote, or if you can steal a quote from somebody else, that's fine as well. Which one is your favorite? <laughs> yeah, well, a long time ago, I kind of said, you know, here we are with all the problems of the world in one hand and a glass yeah. of Shannon in the other hand. Now that's better. That just feels much better. <laughs> 
a glass of Shannon can really help lift the problems of the day. I promise you, it works for me. And, uh, you know, it's just, I heard a lovely, I think it's actually a Dion Mayer quote, if I'm not mistaken, who said that anybody who's against wine simply doesn't understand it. They've never met good wine. And I think that that's a reality. And to see us locked down because of an alcohol ban, I mean, I cannot imagine that people think of wine as alcohol. I, I, you know, if you're talking about abuse um, with alcohol, is it, I mean, can you imagine that people drink a bottle of Shannon Blanc in a restaurant and start stabbing each other with the knives at the table? It's just, it's not, it's not consistent with, with what government is setting out to try and do here. And if anything, yes, I think we, we can't be ignorant about alcohol abuse. It certainly takes place, but I don't believe it's the wine industry. And I don't want to say that we're innocent, but I do think that it has a lot to do with social norms and social government and social policing. And, and actually just people you know, looking out for each other, as well as government's role in a functioning state. Yeah. which is critical. Well, Ken, I mean, on that note, it's been such a pleasure talking to you. If people want to get hold of you guys and uh, want to order wine um, uh, or, or just, you know, want to chat, how do they get hold of you guys? Well, we've got a wonderful website. We've got a great website. We've also, because my daughter convinced me, she's very um, tech savvy, uh, we've got an app. There's a Ken Forrester app. Believe I it saw that. That's wonderful. No, and it's got so much information on it and all of our wines are listed every tasting sheet of every wine in the last 10 years just about and mm -hmm. we, you can order wine direct from us online and um you know we could give you a code and we could give you a code for a discount will if you wanted we, we have people specifically um quote will 10 we'll give you a 10 percent discount on all your orders and um you know for good measure we'll throw in the shipping as well there you go. And uh, Ken, can you promise that um, if you're lucky, Ken Forrester will deliver the wine personally? If it's close enough. I've kind of got a, <laughs> I'm a little bit wonder. We do. I'm kind of travel the Cape. I'm not going to get to Joburg or Broncos Sprite anytime soon. Well, I'm telling you, Ken, your, your, your um, passion is, is really, um, you know, it rubs off. And um, um, it's great to hear somebody that's, after all these years, are so passionate about the business and their wines. It's been such a pleasure talking to you. We'll put all the links down in the description. And um, I'm okay. sure people will love this 10% uh, discount. So um, they just, mm -hmm. there'll be a voucher on the, on the internet site, on the website, when you're buying a wine, there's a payment voucher and you just put in will 10 and we'll give you the 10% discount straight off there. It'll come up automatically. Okay, awesome. That's, that's wonderful. Um, Ken, thank you, thank you so much. I know you're busy, but I really appreciate your time, and I think people will love listening to you. You were very informative, and very entertaining, Thanks. and um, you really made me hungry and thirsty. So that's that's great. <laughs> Those wagyu burgers are something else. Well, you must try the wagyu burgers sometime. So this is burgers, biltong, uh, steaks, um, and, and, and don't forget the cassoulet and the and of course the wine that goes with it. So I mean, for all of this. And the best milk with cheeses, eh? Oh, yeah, of course, that as well. Thank you, Ken. Have a nice day. Cheers, Will. Thanks a lot. Thank you for listening to today's show. Before you go, 
please remember our invitation to post your video in support of the Save SAY campaign. You need to post this to the Facebook group and you will be featured on your 50th podcast. If you are a member of the public, you can support the Save SAY campaign by joining the group and sharing all the social media posts with your friends and family. These are all posts with the hashtag SaveSAY. Here is the group again. Facebook.com forward slash groups forward slash SaveSAY. All the links are in the description below. We really appreciate your support and thanks again for listening. Thank you.